this is one of the closest presidential elections um, in history. It's against George W. Bush, uh, who's the son of H.W., but in who many ways is very different than H.W. You know, H.W., who is this like Connecticut kind of patrician um, lifetime government nerd, um, is different than George W. Bush, who's from Texas and kind of disdains intellectualism and portrays himself as this kind of outsider cowboy guy. Um, although it's important to note that George W. Bush also tried to run on the idea that he was almost the like reverse version of Bill Clinton. Like if Bill Clinton was the new Democrat, that George W. Bush was going to be the new Republican. And he, he talked about compassionate conservatism. Like we need to be conservatives, but we need to stop having this rhetoric that's like against people. And, we're, and he was very like, let's, let's bring, let's respect immigrants. And um, it wasn't clear that he was going to be a super conservative president. Um, but he's a weird guy um, who had been a really serious alcoholic and not really gotten his life together um, and until he became the head of the Texas Rangers. And then he becomes the governor of Texas uh, at a time when Texas is doing really well. But just his style is the style that some people found really they really liked it because he was folksy and they said he'd be like someone you'd like to have a beer with. Whereas Al Gore is actually much more like H.W. Bush. Al Gore is like a lifetime, you know, politician and public servant who thinks that the smart people should be in charge. And if you know a lot about policy, that proves that you should be the president. Whereas George W. Bush is much more like I'm a relatable guy. And the campaign, which happens, you know, right after this period where the Clintons have been not only by the Republicans in Congress, but by the media in huge ways, just crucified. Um, Al Gore does not get very friendly coverage because um, he's seen as this like know-it-all who, um, who just sighs during the debates, which he did, and doesn't respect George W. Bush. Um, and of course, George W. Bush is portrayed in his own way as kind of a buffoon who is stupid and makes up words, mm -hmm. uh, which of course, in his own way, he is. It's, these, these aren't like these are caricatures, but they they have um, truth to them. Um, and of course, it comes down to Florida, and um, oh my God, uh, this is like now some of the first stuff that I remember. Um, so the election comes down to Florida, and it's clear partway through the night that it's going to be really close, and everybody kind of knows that Florida is like the swing state. And they announced that Al Gore has won. Um, and I remember going out into the streets and banging, you know, pots and pans and like being excited with my parents. Um, but then we like were at a victory party, as many Americans were like continuing to watch TV, and then they said, Actually, we're not sure. We think maybe that Florida hasn't gone to Al Gore. And everyone's like, okay. And then they say, actually, we think George W. Bush won. And then Al Gore saw this and was like, oh, George W. Bush won. And he called George W. Bush and conceded. And then they said, actually, we don't know. And then, George, and then Al Gore called George W. Bush back and said, actually, no. So why is there all this confusion? Well, it turns out a lot of weird stuff was going on in Florida. Um, 
first of all, there were all of these ballots that were printed in this weird way where it, like there weren't lined up the names and the holes that you were supposed to punch. And it was also really hard to punch the holes. Um, there were a lot of irregularities with who was on the voting rolls. And it was for some reason, mostly black people who were finding themselves not listed. Um, and so there were thousands of black folks who showed up to vote and found that they weren't allowed to vote. Um, there were really long lines in certain parts of the state, also places that were traditionally black. And um, basically, it also turned out it was a really, really close vote. And so they decided that they're going to need to recount these votes and figure out who definitely won. The governor of Florida just happened to be a fellow by the name of Jeb Bush, who was George W. Bush's brother. And the head of George W. Bush's campaign in Florida was a woman named Katherine Harris, whose day job was the Secretary of State, which is the person who's in charge of all voting in Florida. And there's been a long history in parts of the South, uh, and of course, go back to Kennedy and places in the North, of like little tricks that influence the election this way or that way. So there was at least enough reason. I, I don't mean to suggest that there was some massive conspiracy under Jeb Bush or Katherine Harris, but it was questionable enough that people felt that it was worth some serious investigation. And so the recount that's called for by the Gore campaign starts. And then, I mean, this is one of the strangest periods in American history for like a month you, you're used to waking up after the election and you know who's the president. For a month, we don't know who's going to win. And it's really unclear. And you watch people like looking at these ballots with these holes in them. And like that we had to all learn about the difference between a dimpled Chad and a hanging Chad. And, and um, ultimately, there's a series of Supreme Court cases where basically um, Bush sues to stop the counting of the votes because he fears that in counting, it's going to somehow... I, Gore sues to count the votes, and the Florida Supreme Court rules in favor of him, and then Bush countersues. We could go into all of the legal arguments, but m most of them basically are nonsense. It's just two sides who like either want the votes to be counted or don't want the votes to be counted and come up with some really good, complicated legal arguments one way or the other. And ultimately, it ends up getting appealed directly to the Supreme Court, which is such a strange situation. So... Now you have a Supreme Court, which, by the way, has five justices who are named by Republican presidents and four justices who are named by Democratic presidents. And they rule five to four in Bush versus Gore um, to stop counting the votes. And, and the opinion that they write has this line in it where they say, by the way, this opinion doesn't set any precedents for any future cases. It's a one-off, which seems like obvious attention that they're not making a ruling based on trying to apply rules. They're making a ruling, who knows? It made a lot of people feel that, that if you thought Bill Clinton's election felt somehow questionable, this is like so questionable. This is, we're in like Rutherford B. Hayes territory now, you know, and we haven't been there in a while. George W. Bush takes office, huge protests, a feeling that the system is in some way rigged. Uh, that he, and we do know, two things that we know now. When we went back and counted, eventually journalists counted the votes in Florida. And if the recount had continued, like if the Supreme Court hadn't stopped it, under 
most versions of the count, Bush would have won by a narrow margin. Now, that doesn't take into account all sorts of questions about shenanigans with black voters in areas, but that's much harder to quantify. When you say narrow margin, are we talking... 500 votes or less. It's unbelievable. Nationwide, in a country of almost 300 million people at that point. It's also undeniable that Al Gore got more in the popular vote, about uh, about half a million uh, more votes. So this is the first time since um, Rutherford B. Hayes that someone has won the popular vote and not become president. And Al Gore gave a graceful, though obviously painful, concession speech. And when Bush was inaugurated, he was there as vice president, not interfering with the transfer of power. Um, and But the first few months of Bush taking office, there's this feeling like, what is it going to be like for him to be president? Well, Everyone is questioning his legitimacy. Um, And he immediately puts some pretty big tax cuts uh, into place. Uh, And he has a foreign policy team that's led by his vice president, Dick Cheney, who Dick Cheney was uh, the head of the committee to choose Bush's vice president. And they ran through the whole committee and then they decided that the best person was Dick Cheney. The head of the committee. The head of the committee. But, you know, Dick Cheney had been uh, the Secretary of Defense in his father's administration. And there were people like Donald Rumsfeld and Paul Wolfowitz um, who were seen as what were called neoconservatives. And neoconservatives um, felt that America needed to be more aggressive about using military force to push for democracy, in, particularly in the Middle East. They felt that if you could overthrow some of these regimes like Iran and Iraq and replace them with democratically elected governments that would be friendly to the United States, it could create this kind of reverse domino effect where the whole Middle East would become these democratic states. And then all of this concern about oil um, would be much easier to handle. They were very interested in protecting our oil, and they were also interested in showing America's military force and in protecting our relationship with Israel. Um, And, you know, the Clinton administration had intervened fairly aggressively in a lot of these humanitarian situations and near the end had become very interested in terrorism. And Clinton had created the Office of Counterterrorism and it was uh, led by this guy, Richard Clark. Um, And Osama bin Laden had um, attacked U.S. embassies in Africa um, had been um, partially responsible for the attack on the World Trade Center in 1993, the like bombing mm. that didn't knock down the towers, but that um, and didn't kill many people, but you know was pretty shocking. And eventually, this attack on the USS Cole, which was a U.S. ship in um, the outside of Yemen. And Clinton had ordered some attempts to assassinate bin Laden, um, which had failed. And when he handed over, but really those last, what we know is like a lot of the last days of the Clinton administration involved attempting um, to kill bin Laden. And when they handed it over to 
the Bush administration, the focus was much more on these like longer term neoconservative goals. And so even though there were warnings about um, 9-11 and Richard Clark stayed on and really worked to try to, um, you know, disrupt these plots and also to try to get attention from this new administration, um, there wasn't a focus on bin Laden. And it's really easy in hindsight to like judge that and to say it was because they were obsessed with Iraq and Iran that they didn't pay attention to what was right in front of their face. The story of how 9-11 happens, you know, involves a lot of missteps with the FBI and the CIA having information that they don't share with each other. Um, you know, with Bush receiving briefings, including one in August that said bin Laden determined to attack inside the United States. Um, and with all the like little moments where people could have stopped it. Um, and we could talk about the counterfactuals of what would have happened if Al Gore had been president or what would have happened if they had managed to stop it. But the fact of the matter is that on September 11th, this attack comes out of nowhere and totally changes George W. Bush's presidency. Um, and, you know, he... Uh, Dick Cheney is swept away to like hide. There's, you know, they, this could have been even worse. The plane that was supposed to uh, hit Congress, you know, hits the Pentagon, and the one that's supposed to hit the White House uh, crashes in Pennsylvania. But the feeling of 9 11, if you think it was crazy to feel it as an American in Seattle or Minneapolis, you know, what was it like to be in the White House with the group of people whose job it is to respond to this? And George W. Bush and his team um, immediately declared that this is an act of war and that it's going to require a major response. And this involves going to Congress and getting what's called the Authorization for Use of Military Force, which is not a declaration of war against any particular country, but it gives the president the power to use force against anyone who he determines helped plan or authorize or shelter the people who did these attacks. And that leads to the invasion of Afghanistan um, within, uh, I think, like a month and a half of 9-11, uh, Bin Laden had been hiding in Afghanistan, and they almost catch him, um, but he escapes over the border, we now know, into Pakistan. Um, but there's also all of these stories that as, once 9-11 happened, on the very day of 9-11, there were people within the Bush administration whose immediate question was, how can we um, use this to go into Iraq, which they felt was on their list of neoconservative goals. And some people think that that has to do with oil or, and, you know, Dick Cheney was an oil executive at Halliburton before um, becoming senator and vice president and had a lot of meetings with people in the oil industry. Um, I, I don't buy it as like a conspiracy. I think it was, a, it was a combination of a lot of factors that made people interested in doing this. Obviously, there were people who were left over, like Cheney, from the first Bush administration who felt they should have taken out Saddam Hussein when they had a chance. Under Clinton, Saddam Hussein had um, taken some horrible genocidal actions towards the Kurds in northern Iraq, and Clinton had put sanctions on them, but that hadn't really succeeded in stopping this. And so there's also some humanitarian people who are saying we should take out Saddam Hussein because he's a bad guy. Um, 
But all of those arguments that I just listed probably wouldn't be successful with convincing the public that we should take him out, right? Even, even after people have support for the president, um, that you know, his approval ratings go up to 90% after 9-11, um, I still don't think it would have been enough to say, well, we just want to get him and we know it's not related to 9-11. Because um, the truth is, it's not related to 9-11. There's no connection between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. But that's the best argument to convince people that we should go into Iraq. And so there is a push from Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and um, Colin Powell and a lot of these people within the administration to suggest or imply or even um, say outright that Saddam Hussein either was connected to 9-11 itself or is on his way to planning the next 9-11. And Bush gives a speech in which he claims that um, Saddam Hussein has been attempting to get weapons of mass destruction or already has weapons of mass destruction. And the truth is, we were pretty sure that Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction because we gave them to him in the 80s, chemical weapons and other things that were used against the Iranians in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, But the question of whether he had nuclear material was much hazier and was based on some intelligence that when a U.S. official named Joe Wilson had been sent to investigate it, found that it wasn't really true. That the, that the like uranium yellow cake or the metal tubes that Bush ends up claiming are the evidence that he, that, you know, this could be as Condoleezza Rice said on television, the smoking gun that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. That kind of you know, fear rhetoric it has to involve some serious bending of the truth, if not outright lies. It was definitely not a full consensus, which is why when George W. Bush went to the UN and said, I would like to get the support of the international community to do this, the UN said no. Um, which Dick Cheney and others felt that he shouldn't even have to go to the UN. Um, but he was hoping to get international support. And when that failed, he formed what he called the Coalition of the Willing, which was the United States, Britain, and then after that it's like Italy, Poland. Not, you know, it's, France and Germany were the most notable opponents of the war. And there were massive protests in the United States and around the world, some of the biggest anti-war protests in history. Um, and people on the left in the United States and around the world didn't trust George W. Bush anyway. It's just weird that he cared so much about having democracy in Iraq. Why did he care so much about it? Yeah, and that's like, of course, the most interesting question. Did he care so much about it because he was a neoconservative? Did he have some weird thing about either wanting to like finish the job that his dad hadn't done or like wanting to outdo his dad because he had a weird relationship with his dad? Um, was he concerned with oil? Did he just like the idea of running a really big war that would be much more, you know, successful than the war in in Afghanistan, which was always kind of complicated and, and, um, seems like he just wanted to take action after 9-11. And I think that, um, also reflects the attitude of a lot of the American public was that people were really scared after 9-11. And of course the... Bush administration um, didn't try to stop people from being scared. They created, um, well, they they took a lot of actions to try to make the country safer, but it also in, involved 
you know, the terror alert system where you had different colors and the Patriot Act, which allowed the government to more closely monitor people who were suspected terrorists and all different forms of intelligence gathering that were new. So the country, I mean, this country's scared shitless. This is a, um, oh, I think it's the first time I've sworn. The country, <laughs> the country's terrified. Um, and the Bush administration recognizes that people who are scared are <coughs> more likely to support action than inaction. And the Iraq war is an action that they wanted to take for a variety of different reasons. And so all they had to do was tie it into the current feelings of fear. And so they did. And they got a vote in the U.S. Congress not to declare war on Iraq, but to support the president's ability to use force in Iraq if he wanted, which they got the votes of Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, Joe Biden, a whole lot of Democrats who either... You can interpret it as we're convinced by the story that Saddam Hussein was really dangerous and secretly had weapons of mass destruction or wanted to be president and could, and could feel that if they were going to try to run in four years that they didn't want to have been the ones who voted against the war because they remember how the whole Vietnam thing worked out for George McGovern. But it, yeah, it does put the Democrats in this weird position because um, the war, which starts in 2003, um, is incredibly successful in getting rid of Saddam Hussein so fast. What's called the shock and awe campaign in which precision bombing and high-tech military, um, you know, convoys take over Iraq like that. And Saddam Hussein is chased out and um, the U.S. puts in place a provisional government and it's like, wow, we are, it's just like the Gulf War all over again. We're so good at taking stuff over. And then it very quickly becomes clear that, oh, the part that didn't happen in the first Gulf War where you stay and try to figure out what comes next was something that the Bush administration really did not plan for. And they hadn't thought through who should be in power. Also, they didn't find any weapons of mass destruction. Um, so... By 2004, just a year later, you have Americans having lost their lives in a war that now people are confused about why we went into in the first place. You have the start of what's called the insurgency, which is basically just a resistance of Iraqis, many of whom had been serving in Saddam Hussein's army. And then through this decision the Bush administration made, which said, if you've been a part of Saddam Hussein's political party, which was like the party everyone had to be part of under the dictator, you can't serve in government and you can't be in the army. So you take this whole group of people who uh, had been in power, have guns, and are probably some of the educated people who could actually run the country, and you say, you're out. And a lot of them end up joining these terrorist or insurgent, rebel, whatever. There's so many things about Iraq that they didn't seem to think about. Now, part of it is like the, is like the ethnic split because the country is majority Shia, whereas Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. But of course, under Saddam Hussein, those splits were, were like kind of hidden away. And yet once this new system is being put in place, it's mostly Sunnis who are resisting against um, the Americans who are sided with the majority because they're going to put in place a democracy. But then there are Shia militias that are like attacking um, 
Sunni civilians. And so it turns into this like horrible civil war slash anti-occupation movement and people very quickly are souring on this war. And it's not that hard for a generation of people who watched Vietnam happen to like look at this pattern and start asking questions like, is this just another Vietnam that you're in? And so in 2004, the person that the Democrats choose to run against George W. Bush is the hero of the anti-Vietnam War movement, John Kerry. He was a soldier who had been decorated in Vietnam, but then came back and formed Vietnam Veterans Against the War and had spoken out against it. And so he seems like this perfect guy to kind of be the poster boy for let's not make this mistake again. And he's got this kind of Massachusetts wealthy but caring Kennedy thing that people like. Um, But he also voted for the war in Iraq. So it's hard for him to run his anti-war campaign based on a pro-war stance. And of course, he, sa- he has this famous phrase where he says, I voted for the war before I voted against it. Or sorry, I voted against the war before I voted for it. Because there were just like different versions of the bill that went through committee and then onto the floor. And so he's like trying to make the argument that he was like, well, I wasn't like the most pro-war person because when it was in committee, I voted against it before I voted for it. And the Republicans just pounced on that and were like, he's a flip-flopper. He can't be trusted. Right. Um, and, um, again, really close election, um, comes down to a few thousand votes in Ohio where there were some very strange things that went on. Uh, but there's no question that George W. Bush won the popular vote. Um, and, uh, certainly it was a much less controversial election than the Florida election. Was there a possibility of Gore rerunning against Bush? A lot of people. I had a shirt that said reelect Gore in 2004, but uh, he decided not to run again. And Why? I think he was still figuring out his, I think he had gone through a grieving process and was not feeling ready to do that. And I also think Americans weren't ready to have that whole election again. Um, actually, the person who seemed more likely to to get there was the governor of Vermont, Howard Dean, who had, as governor of Vermont, been very openly and vocally against the war. And he, he was running in the Democratic primary saying, I was against the war from the very beginning, and I'm this, like, liberal guy from Vermont. And then uh, the... Democratic Party, like insiders really didn't like this guy and the media found him to be kind of weird and there was this whole thing with the Dean scream where he like, basically he is in a room that's like full of screaming people and he goes, yeah! But the way the mics were set up on TV, you couldn't hear the crowd but you could just hear the speaker. And so people who are watching it on TV see this guy who's like screaming for what appears to be no reason and that fit into their like narrative of him as like kind of out of control. But he doesn't get to be the nominee. John Kerry does. John Kerry gets creamed. George W. Bush gets a second term. Um, he set, decides that to use his reelection, that it's his goal now in his second term to be like a more aggressive conservative. And he's going to privatize Social Security. And Social Security is FDR's great legacy from the New Deal, which if F- everyone in America after you're 65 gets money from the government as like a pension, right? And Bush, like many conservatives, saw that as like one of the roots of this relationship between the people and their government that was based on entitlement. And so he goes around the country campaigning to say that they're going to turn switch from Social Security to like private pension accounts. Um, but it's not popular. 
and he fails to do that. And the war in Iraq gets worse and worse. And in 2006, the Democrats take over the House and the Senate from him. And so for his last couple of years in office, it seems like the war is going to end. Then he decides to do this thing called the surge, where they're going to actually send more troops into Iraq. Um, and in some ways, it's successful in, well, in some at the time that it happens, um, violence goes down. And part of it was about the number of troops, but it was also about the switch to this guy, David Petraeus, his strategy, which was basically that the United States needed to spend more time connecting with the communities in Iraq and like figuring out how to make them feel positive towards the United States. It's like it's called counterinsurgency, but really it's it's like changing the role of the army from like trying to hunt down and fight as many people as possible to like really trying to like almost serve as the government in some ways and to prove the, the fact that you're there to help. Um so that manages to prolong the war that seemed like it might end.